So did Jesus really claim to be God? Is he God? Well, many give an emphatic no, many give an emphatic yes, and many people are in between, which means their answer right now is an emphatic no. See, there is no fence to sit on. You are either no or yes about Jesus Christ. Either you love him with all of your heart or you don't. There is no fence. If Jesus claimed to be God, did he substantiate it? It would take a lot of works to back up those kind of words. Now, you've heard the saying, put your money where your mouth is, and that's about right. It's easy to talk big, but not as easy to deliver big. I love the game charades. I don't know if you have ever played charades before, but I will sometimes spontaneously uh, suggest to play charades. Uh, maybe at awkward times, I don't know. And Anyway, when the, the shirks got together uh, over the holidays, we played charades together. Kids loved it. We loved it. We all, we all had this great time. And Anyway, I pride myself on being an excellent charades player. And uh, I want, like, I welcome the tough words because I know I'm going to nail it every time. And uh, so it ended up, I ended up taking some, some cues from the opposite team, a couple things to act out, and people, they were painfully easy. Um, watermelon was one of them. I think Holy Spirit was one of them. And then there was one other one. And so I talked big. I was like, all three of them, 60 seconds or less. Well, go. Out of the box, I start with the theatrics, right? It was brilliant. I got none of them. <laughs> none of them. My theatrics failed miserably to convince my team of any of the words. They just didn't get it. Talk can be so cheap. So cheap. Jesus talked really big. But he delivered. He lived really big. He accomplished what no other man could replicate, what no other man could accomplish. See, the works of Jesus authenticated the words of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus authenticated the message of Jesus. And what we're going to see at the end of John 10, if we haven't seen it already, is that Jesus unequivocally claimed to be God, and he proved that he, he is. Jesus said he was God. Many people flatly deny that. For Muslims, Jesus is a great prophet, but he's definitely not God. They, they don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God. Dr. Reza Aslan is a Muslim and internationally acclaimed religion scholar and a New York Times bestselling author. In an interview with NPR, Dr. Aslan said, quote, I wouldn't call myself a Christian because I do not believe that Jesus is God, nor do I believe that he ever thought that he was God or that he ever said that he was God, end of quote. Oddly enough, I kid you not, Dr. Aslan still considers himself a genuinely committed disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. At least some Jews believe Jesus never claimed to be God. Rabbi Tovia Singer is a world-renowned public speaker. He has a national radio program in Israel. He is the founder and director of Outreach Judaism, an international organization dedicated to countering the efforts of fundamentalist Christian groups and cults who specifically target Jews for conversion. 
This is what Rabbi Tobia says, quote, Throughout the Gospels and Paul's letters, Jesus never claims to be God. On the contrary, the New Testament makes it clear that he is not God, but rather an agent of God entirely subordinate to the Father, end of quote. Some professing Christians even deny that Jesus claimed to be God. One of the leaders of the charismatic movement, author and televangelist Kenneth Copeland, said that Jesus told him directly the following, quote, they crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed I walked with him and that he was in me. End of quote. Millions and millions and millions of people on planet Earth don't believe Jesus ever claimed to be God, and their lives show it. But what did Jesus really say? Now, this is going to be exciting, I hope. Before we dig into John 10, I'd like to play a little game with you. Probably the first time you've ever played a game in a sermon, but here we go. Kids, you can play this too, so listen closely. There is a point to this, I hope. Uh, I'm going to make 10 statements about myself to communicate one simple truth. And you're going to try to figure out what that truth is, but I'm not going to tell you in the exact words, all right? And then at the end, I'm going to give you a fill in the blank. So here goes. Number one, I took vows of commitment to one woman. Number two, I have promised to remain faithful to my wife. Number three, Christina is my wife. Number four, I am a husband. Number five, I am a spouse. Number six, at one time, I was the smooth groom, mm-hmm. awaiting his beautiful bride, and I got to kiss her. Number seven, I participated in my own wedding. Number eight, I tied the knot over 10 years ago. Number nine, I got hitched on August 7th, 2004. And last but not least, number 10, I wear a ring because I am what the ring signifies. Now, I want you to fill in the blank. Here goes. I am married. I never said that. I never said that. How did you figure it out? In order to discern whether Jesus actually said he was God, you need to understand two simple things. Number one, you can say something very clearly in many different ways without ever using the exact words. Agreed? Number two, You need to know your Bibles. You need to know your Bibles to understand the clear statements Jesus made about himself. Every letter of the Bible is read. It all comes from Jesus. But let's listen to what Jesus said in John and then decide whether he claimed to be God. I think you'll find this helpful. Jesus regularly referred to God as his Father and gave himself the exclusive title of the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man, a messianic uh, title, a divine title from Daniel 7. Jesus said he descended from heaven. He called people to come to him, to believe in him, and to follow him for eternal life. He told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Christ. He claimed to be doing the work of God. In John 5.18, the Jews sought to murder him in part because he was calling, his, calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And equal means equality of essence. Jesus claimed Moses wrote about him in the Old Testament. He said multiple times that God had sent him from heaven. He used seven 
I am statements about himself which unmistakably connect to Exodus 3.14 where God himself says that he is I am. He said that he was true and in him is no falsehood. He claimed to be able to quench the soul thirst of everyone who drank of him by faith. Throughout the Old Testament, God is the light. And Jesus said, I am the what of the world? The light of the world. He said, he judges with the Father. He said, God bears witness about him. Jesus said, I am from above. And unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He said, the Father taught him and sent him. He said, quote, I always do the things that are pleasing to God, so he claimed moral perfection. Get this, Jesus said that God glorifies him. Here's a big one. He said to Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They tried to stone him for that one. Jesus gladly accepted worship from the blind man that he healed. Out of all the metaphors that Jesus could have used, he used one from the Old Testament that uh, the Old Testament uses to describe God and his people. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he referred to his sheep, God's people. Later in John, he would tell his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He even boldly asked God to glorify him with the same glory he shared with God before creation began. But one of his clearest statements Jesus made about himself was John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. An indisputable claim to unity, singularity, and oneness with God in both essence and purpose. He echoed it again later in John 17, 11 and verse 22. When the Jews heard that, I and the Father are one, they were about to break Roman law and stone Jesus on the spot. They didn't have the authority to do that. Rome did. Why? Verse 33 gives the answer. Blasphemy. To blaspheme is to insult God, to defame God, to slander or disparage God's essence. And listen to what they said next in verse 33. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. To them, Jesus was only a man. A simple man from Nazareth. Hmm. So when he said, I and the Father are one, he was absolutely making himself God. And they cried foul blasphemy because there was one God and God was God. Jesus was not God to them. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 4, 35 says, The Lord is God, there is no other besides him. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, God said, Besides me, there is no God. God is one. God is not two. God is singular, not plural. These Jews clearly had no concept of the Trinity, the oneness and the threeness of God. So when Jesus said he and the Father are one, it was a clear statement of divinity that was damnable by them because they just didn't get what the Bible said about the Trinity. 
To make matters worse for the Jews, Jesus said in verse 36 that the Father had consecrated him, that he sanctified him, that he set him apart for a sacred purpose, and that he was sent to accomplish that purpose of God. Jesus was also claiming a divine commission from God himself. He even admitted saying, I am the Son of God, which meant I am God. Think about Isaiah 7, 14, something these Jews would have been familiar with. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a what? Son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. The son would be God with us. The son would be divine. Think about Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Son would be Mighty God. The Son would be Everlasting Father. One more point to drive it home. In John 1, John explains so eloquently that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, but not only that, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, John said who the Word is, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the, and listen for it, only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John began by telling us about the Son who is distinct from God and yet one with God. He is God. And Jesus did nothing but affirm that reality throughout his ministry. Did Jesus ever say the exact words, I am God? Well, no. At least it wasn't recorded in the New Testament. But Jesus certainly, without a shadow of doubt, claimed to be God. And he said it a bunch of different ways. It is intellectually dishonest to say that Jesus never claimed to be God and was simply a moral man, a good example, a teacher that, that taught us ethical and practical principles of life, that is just not an option. Either he is God and he should be loved and served as such, or he is a pathological liar and should be uh, totally rejected as a delusional sociopathic freak. There is no fence. The Jews had a different slant on Jesus. You see, the Jews said that Jesus wasn't God, that he wasn't God. Their desire to stone him, their accusation of blasphemy and their arrest attempt uh, all made their view perfectly clear. They weren't buying it. They didn't believe Jesus and God are one. They believed his miracles, but not his message. They believed his works, but not his words. Back in verse 20, they accused him of demon possession and actually being insane. They knew where Jesus stood, they knew where they stood, and they were at odds. Now, who was right? Who got it right? And why did they get it right? We have to have an answer for that. We essentially have two competing hypotheses about Jesus Christ. So I want to evaluate them based on the text. Is Jesus right to say he is God? If so, I hope you see the massive implications that has on all of our lives. Were the Jews right? Was Jesus demon-possessed? Was Jesus actually insane? Well, if he was, then we should 
right now, abandon Christianity and live however we want, which is what most of the world has done already, regardless of the evidence, there is no fence. Let's first look at the case Jesus presented for himself and then the competing case that the Jews presented. In verse 32, Jesus asked them very wisely, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He was setting them up. You know, this is a great angle for him to take. Jesus had had already showcased his power and his authority and identity through the many good works that he had done. Many of them were public, and he said back in verse 25, if you'll take a look, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Think about all the good works that Jesus Christ did that people encountered, that they watched, that they were the recipients of, that they heard about. Water into wine. Cleanse the temple of corruption. Perform multiple public miracles in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover. He amassed more disciples than the famous John the Baptist. Healed an official son. Healed a paralytic. Miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. Healed a man born blind and he did lots of other stuff. A lot of other cool stuff. No one in the New Testament ever seemed to deny the miracles of Jesus. They didn't try to argue them away. They accepted them, but they argued away his words. They didn't even try to mess with the resurrection and deny that. They just made up a lie. Jesus used his good works as a defense to the Jews of his claim to be the Son of God. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now imagine some little kid of Mannheim comes up to you and says, my daddy's Bill Gates. You'd be like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, right. Thank you, little man, run along, run along. Until an entourage of seven black suburbans rolls up, Bill Gates jumps out and says, it's time to go, son. And the son runs over and kisses his dad and jumps into the the middle suburban with a license plate that says Bills and the S is a dollar sign. You're starting to put things together like, oh, no way. I'm going to tell my friends about this. I just said, the little kid, Bill Gates, he was here. Jesus was basically saying, look, if you don't believe me, at least believe this incredible stuff that I'm doing right in front of you. Just watch that and believe that, what you see me do. And understand that the works that I'm doing right now, this incredible stuff, is actually proving that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Just look at what I'm doing. Try to argue it away, folks. Just look what I'm doing. Wasn't that his point? He's making a lot of points here. He had them right where he wanted them. Can you see why Jesus was so infuriating to people, why they wanted him dead? They certainly couldn't refute him, so you might as well kill him to get him out of the way. No one refuted his miracles, nor his logic, so the only thing left to do was to arrest him, to stone him, to kill him, whatever, in order to stop him. There's something you need to know. 
when you're evaluating these competing hypotheses, it's always uh, hypotheses. It's always very important to know any agendas behind the scene. The Jews had an agenda. If you haven't picked that up already, and it was not about truth. There was something on going on in their hearts. Rationality left them a long time ago. John 11, which we're going to get to soon, and is such a powerful, powerful passage of scripture. It tells us exactly why Jesus was such a problem for them. It says this, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Isn't that interesting? They wanted to protect their precious temple and religion, and nation. They wanted to protect their positions of power and authority and their personal interests. It wasn't about truth. It was about greed. It was about egotism. It was about nationality and nationalism. Listen to our culture, people. The, The objections to Jesus are often so irrational and rarely are they fair to the Scripture. Most people strongly opposed to the Bible know very little about the Bible. Enough to even speak intelligently, but yet they radically oppose it. They don't care because our culture is driven by self-interest and autonomy from any higher authority and moral constraints. Just listen to people in our culture and watch their lives and you'll see it. You can see right through to the agenda that they're getting at. The Jews wanted to stone him in order to stop him. They actually said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. Of course it wasn't. They didn't argue with his miracles. They wanted to convict him of blasphemy, but in order to do so, they had to ignore his miracles, and it just was too overwhelming. And Jesus caught them in their air. They disconnected the words of Jesus from the works of Jesus. Now, verses 34 and 35 are a bit tricky. I had to study this hard to make sense of it in my mind. I'm, I'm still not sure it's completely clear, but I think I have it. In verse 34, Jesus quoted Psalm 82, verse 6. So wouldn't it make sense that you have to understand a little bit about Psalm 82 in order to then understand what Jesus' point is in John 10? So that's what we're going to do. Go to Psalm 82. This is part of the Old Testament or law. It's probably about the middle of your Bible in case you're unfamiliar with where the books are. So turn there for a moment. Psalm 82, as I set this up here, is talking about unjust leaders or judges of the nations. Verse 1 says that God has taken his place in the divine council and that he holds judgment among the gods. Now that sounds like Greek mythology, if you you think about it. But it's actually poetry emphasizing God's sovereign rule and judgment over every earthly ruler to which he designates his authority. It's clear God is addressing dishonorable mortals in verses 2 through 7. In verse 5, God says these leaders have neither knowledge nor understanding. They live in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken when they judge. That's negligent and undiscerning leadership. In verse 6, God used hyperbole to describe these leaders as gods, as gods. He also called them sons of the Most High, for He created them, gave them authority, and they served His sovereign purposes. 
In verse 7, God addressed the metaphorical gods by saying, Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse 8 pleads for God to judge the earth, connecting these gods again to humanity. Do you see all the the earthly references that are defining these gods as, as earthly? Keep in mind, Psalm 82 is poetry. Does poetry always make it clear, folks? No. You have to study it, and you have to think deeply about the imagery that is being used. This is a song pleading for God's rescue and justice. And terms like gods is a creative way to represent people and their, these leaders and their authority and their power. The point to note is that God is ascribing the term gods to human beings. That's the point that you need to see. Can you see it in Psalm 82? Now, here's a quick aside. Some TV preachers and personalities distort messages just like this in the the Scripture to teach that we are all little gods, that we are divine. Years ago, the late Paul Crouch, you might know that name from TBN, said, quote, I am a little god. And Kenneth Copeland, who was sitting with him, agreed with him, and so Crouch said it again more emphatically, and Copeland responded, you are anything that he is. One time Copeland preached, when I read the Bible, where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. Creflo Dollar is the pastor of World Changers Church International in Georgia, which is now one of the largest churches in America. Years back, he told his congregation, quote, You are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God, and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. Commenting on Psalm 82, and totally missing the point, Benny Hinn Ask a crowd, who are the gods? And he told them, you are. Then he asked them, are you God's offspring? The crowd answered clearly, yes. And Benny Hinn said very clearly, then you are not human. Bill Winston, a megachurch pastor from Illinois, told a congregation years ago, we have to get you appointed with your divinity. The popular TV preacher and New York Times bestselling author Joyce Meyer has also said very, very dangerous things about the little God doctrine, among other destructive doctrines. Folks, we need to study our Bibles so we're not misled by drivel like that. Psalm 87 is not teaching that we are gods. <laughs> but that God holds judgment over unjust leaders holding power and authority, uniquely Israel's leaders. If you twist and manipulate Psalm 87, then you lose Jesus' point in John 10. So jump back to John 10. The point Jesus was making in verses 34 and 35 was not that we are all little gods. His point was to expose the vengeful absurdities of the Jews. His point was this. If God assigned the term gods to immoral leaders, it's not a stretch for the incorrupt... I'm sorry, I jumped ahead there. 
His point was this. If God assigned the term gods to immoral leaders in the law, then why are they so angry that Jesus, God's consecrated and sent one, said, I am the son of God? Are you following what's happening there? MacArthur, he explained it like this. Quote, certainly if the terms term God could be applied to corrupt rulers, it's not a stretch for the incorruptible, perfect, sinless, righteous Son of God to be called God. Well, Jesus had masterfully argued them right into a corner. He had them. What could they say to refute his logic? One more thing from verse 35. It's a little statement, but it is a massive, massive truth. Jesus used the phrase, word of God, and then he added, and scripture cannot be broken. First, Jesus believed that the scripture, and at that point it was the completed Old Testament, was actually God's word, directly given from him. The Bible is God's word. Second, Jesus believed that scripture can never be broken, never destroyed, never undone, or never unaccomplished And it is therefore true, reliable, and authoritative in all things. Because God is unchanging and true, so is his divine scripture. Jesus said on another occasion in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What he means by an iota or a dot, every little scribal little point is going to be fulfilled of the scripture. It will be done because it is from God. Jesus said scripture cannot be broken because he believes wholeheartedly that whatever God says will be accomplished. Now we could spend a whole series on that, one, those, that little phrase right there, but we have to move on. Here's where this wonderful chapter comes to an end. We've been in it for a while, but it's been great. I hope you've enjoyed it. Many people who knew the ministry of John the Baptist came to Jesus, and they said uh, in this moment, John did no sign. John did no sign. He did no miracle. As famous and as influential as John the Baptist was, he never did any miracles. But he did preach Jesus Christ. The people continued But everything that John said about this man was true. And at this point, we have to say, what did John say? Can we remember what John said about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John knew that he existed to point people to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God. The end of John 10 is what faith looks like. Many people believed in Jesus across the Jordan. People got saved because they saw that the words of Jesus were authenticated by the works of Jesus. They actually believed in Him. They placed their faith in Him. They came to Him for salvation because it is only God who saves. What about you? Are you convinced? Are you really convinced? Don't be too quick to say, oh, absolutely, I'm convinced. Think about it. Are you convinced? Your life shows what you really believe about Jesus. Your life 
shows what you really believe about the Son of God. If you live for Christ, your holiness authenticates your faith. If you're passionate about God's word, your study and your obedience of it authenticate your passion for God himself. If you love church and sacrificially give yourself to one another, your love applied to others authenticates your love for God. When you share the gospel with your friends, your evangelism authenticates your delight in the gospel. Jesus said he is God. Jesus proved by his works that he is God. Jesus is God. Don't you think, therefore, that our lives should reflect that through our steadfast love for him and our joyful obedience to everything that he says? You see, if we're going to stand on that mountain and be unwavering, Jesus is God, then don't you think our lives should reflect that we actually believe that? And if he says to do something, we say, absolutely, my God and my Savior, I go to the ends of the earth for you because you saved me. Isn't that consistent? Here's a challenge for you. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Gospels. And encounter the miracles Jesus did in his Father's name. Let the eyewitness testimony and account just speak to you that other people in history saw these things and reported it to you. If you don't believe history and you're one of the skeptics that's like, you know what, only science, only what we can prove for science, you will believe very little. You have nothing to stand on because there are historical methods that are very reliable that will look back in history and say these things happen. Okay? This is eyewitness account. Uh, look at his miracles from the gospel and believe in Jesus. Because if, if you believe that he accomplished these things, then whatever he says is precious and good and authoritative for our lives. We must embrace the teaching of Jesus. Put your confidence in him because of his unrivaled power and glory and beauty. Believe his miracles so that you may know and understand and have confidence that God is in Jesus and Jesus is in God. Talk is cheap, right? Now tonight, I am sure the halftime show will be a complete mess. I can pretty much guarantee that. But Katy Perry did sing this. Shut up and put your money where your mouth is. Well, I don't think we should shut up about Jesus. Quite the opposite. I think we could say a little bit more about him. But I do think you need to put your life where your mouth is. Authenticate your words by your works. If Jesus hasn't done the works of God, please don't believe him. He's a charlatan if he didn't do the works of God. But if he has, if his life, death, and resurrection are all true, and they emphatically are, without a doubt, beyond all reasonable doubt, then you have no other choice. No other choice than to fall at his feet and worship him with all your heart and devote your life to bringing him glory in everything. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much 
for your perspicuous word, your clear word. We can read it and understand it. Sure, there are parts that are confusing. But there's one thing among many, many others that is not confusing. Jesus claimed to be God. And by his works, Jesus proved to be God. What more do we want to see a person do in history that heals the sick, that feeds 25,000 people with just a little guy's lunch? Um, What more do we want to see than raising the dead? What more do we want to see than a man who says, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life on my own authority three days later, conquering sin, Satan, hell, the grave, and he did it. The tomb is empty. We have no proof of the body of the most famous man in history. Where is he? He's alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. And God, we worship your Son as God because he is. You are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is precious to us. Your son is precious to us because he made a way and accomplished our salvation in himself, bringing us to you, reconciling us to you, the Father who loves us. So God, I just pray, this this application is so simple today. I pray that Jerusalem Church believes this so deeply that they live out that belief, that their, their works would authenticate their words. I pray that if, if someone is here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that by the power of your sovereign Holy Spirit and by the power of your gospel spoken, you will save them today and help them to live their life for the glory of God. Change people's hearts today. And I pray, God, that we can together work so hard to take the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond this church to our friends, to our neighbors to our coworkers, to the world. And God, we're going to need your massive help and your blessing to do that. That's what we want to do. So we're asking that you do that through us. In the name of Jesus, your only Son, who is fully God and fully man, we pray. Amen. Well, we